1 Kings chapter 14. At that time, Abijah, son of Jeroboam, became ill. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Go, disguise yourself so that you won't be recognized as the wife of Jeroboam. Then go to Shiloh. Ahijah the prophet is there, the one who told me I would be king over his people. Take ten loaves of bread with you, some cakes and a jar of honey, and go to him. He will tell you what will happen to the boy. So Jeroboam's wife did what he said and went to Ahijah's house in Shiloh. Now Ahijah could not see. His height was gone because of his age. But the Lord had told Ahijah, Jeroboam's wife is coming to ask you about her son, for he is ill, and you are to give her such and such an answer. When she arrives, she will pretend to be someone else. So when Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps at the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam, why this pretense? I have been sent to you with bad news. Go, tell Jeroboam that this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I raised you up from among the people and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. But you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commands and followed me with all his heart, doing only what was right in my eyes. You have done more evil than all who lived before you. You have made for yourself other gods, idols made of metal. You have aroused my anger and turned your back on me. Because of this, I'm going to bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. I will cut off from Jeroboam every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will burn up the house of Jeroboam as one burns dung until it is all gone. Dogs will eat those belonging to Jeroboam who die in the city, and the birds will feed on those who die in the country. The Lord has spoken. As for you, go back home. When you set foot in your city, the boy will die. All Israel will mourn for him and bury him. He is the only one belonging to Jeroboam who will be buried because he is the only one in the house of Jeroboam in whom the Lord, the God of Israel, has found anything good. The Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who will cut off the family of Jeroboam. Even now, this is beginning to happen. And the Lord will strike Israel so that it will be like a reed swaying in the water. He will uproot Israel from this good land that he gave to their ancestors and scatter them beyond the river Euphrates because they aroused the Lord's anger by making a shearer poles. And he will give Israel up because of the sins Jeroboam has committed and has caused Israel to commit. Then Jeroboam's wife got up and left and went to Terzah. As soon as she stepped over the threshold of the house, the boy died. They buried him, and all Israel mourned for him, as the Lord had said, through his servant, the prophet Ahijah. The other events of Jeroboam's reign, his wars and how he ruled, are written in the book of the Annals of the Kings of Israel. He reigned for 22 years and then rested with his ancestors. And Nadab, his son, succeeded him as king. Rehoboam, son of Solomon, was king in Judah. He was 41 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 17 years in Jerusalem, the city the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel in which to put his name. His mother's name was Naamar. She was an Ammonite. Judah did evil in the eyes of the Lord. By the sins they committed, they stirred up his jealous anger more than those who were before them had done. They also set up for themselves high places, 
sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. There were even male shrine prostitutes in the land, the people engaged in all the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem. He carried off the treasures of the temple of the Lord and the treasures of the royal palace. He took everything, including all the gold shields Solomon had made. So King Rehoboam made bronze shields to replace them and assigned these to the commanders of the guard on duty at the entrance to the royal palace. Whenever the king went to the Lord's temple, the guards bore the shields and afterwards they returned them to the guard room. As for the other events of Rehoboam's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? There was continual warfare between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Rehoboam rested with his ancestors and was buried with them in the city of David. His mother's name was Naamah, she was an Ammonite, and Abijah, his son, succeeded him as king. And over the page now, we'll carry on reading from chapter 15 and verse 25. Nadab, son of Jeroboam, became king of Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel for two years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the ways of his father and committing the same sin his father had caused Israel to commit. Baasha, son of Ahijah from the tribe of Issachar, plotted against him and he struck him down at Gibbethon, a Philistine town, while Nadab and all Israel were besieging it. Baasha killed Nadab in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and succeeded him as king. As soon as he began to reign, he killed Jeroboam's whole family. He did not leave Jeroboam anyone that breathed, but destroyed them all, according to the word of the Lord, given through his servant Ahijah, the Shilonite. This happened because of the sins Jeroboam had committed and had caused Israel to commit, and because he aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel. This is God's word. Father, the Apostle Paul would tell us in 1 Corinthians 10, these things are written down for our instruction, for our warning, so that we may not run the race of the Christian life aimlessly, but live it in such a way that brings honor and glory to you. So Father, we don't want to waste our lives. So help us understand this rightly, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, one article I just happened to glance at in the press a couple of weeks ago uh, was on family businesses. Not that I have one, but it just looked a bit interesting to me. 70% of family businesses fail when they're passed on a generation. That's quite a high stat, isn't it? 70%. But you go to the third generation, 87% of family businesses have failed. Wow. Now, of course, in one sense, there's some logical reasons for that. You know, the guy who founds it, he may be a genius. His son really may not be. Um, that's, sort of, that's, I guess, quite common. But they said often it comes just down to drive and energy. You know, the first generation, he's making something from nothing. The second generation, he, she, well, they've known a little more plenty in their lives, haven't had to work quite as hard. By the time you get to the third generation where they've been sent to the nicest schools, had the nicest upbringing, the nicest restaurants in the nicest places, why should they bother to work? And so the company tanks, and it goes a bit like that. So where you've got the first generation is wise, 
and hardworking and industrious. It just drifts through the generations. And if you have a family business, it doesn't have to be that way. It will be the 13% that do well. But um, it's a bit like that when you come to this section of 1 Kings, which we're returning to after a bit of a break. If you drift away from wisdom, well, quite rapidly, the whole thing unravels. Here, a nation unravels. If you were here in the autumn, we looked at uh, 1 Kings chapters 1 to 11, which is really the reign of King Solomon. And it was magnificent. It's, it's, the, it's the real high point of the kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament. Solomon, the wisest man the world has ever seen, ruling over the greatest kingdom the world has ever seen. The nations come to hear him speak. The nations come to <gasps> gasp at his treasury. It's magnificent. And yet, towards the end of his reign, he, rather than doing what he was told to listen to the word of God, obey the commandments, to pursue wisdom, he starts to drift. And the generation after him, well, the kingdom is completely unraveling. I don't know what you'd say, unraveling faster than Manchester United after Alex Ferguson have gone, unraveling faster than the EU after a Brexit, whatever you want. But it's unraveling. It's unraveling. The whole thing is coming apart from its high point. But the, the point, the problem here in Israel is not an economic one, really. It's not a sporting one. It's disobedience. Whereas once they had a king who listened to the word of God and was wise, the next generation do not. And very rapidly, the kingdom is unraveling. Now, we do need to uh, get our bearings uh, somewhat. Not all of us uh, instinctively know, oh, yes, it's 1 Kings 14, my favorite bit of the Bible. Let me just, let's just get our bearings a little bit. As I said, in chapters 1 to 11, you've had the reign of Solomon, a wonderful, wonderful king. And it may well be worth just turning back a couple of pages to 350, page 350, just to see what was going on. Uh, so chapter 11 and verse, well, let me pick it up at verse 9. So near the top of page 350, the first column, little number nine. Solomon had been magnificent, but, but, here's what went wrong. Verse nine, the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who'd appeared to him twice. Although he'd forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude, you've not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly... Tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. It'll be, I'll tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet, and this is going to be important for today. Yet, verse 13, I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, for the sake of Jerusalem, which I've chosen. So Solomon, you've bogged it, so I'm afraid the kingdom's going to go. Ten tribes are going to be ripped away from you and become the northern... Oh, it disappeared already. Uh, We we can see it. So this is what happens in 931 BC, after uh, the death of Solomon. You can see it. You've got his son, Rehoboam, just Judah in the south. Sometimes referred to the two tribes because Benjamin's a tiny itty-bitty in there. A bit like, uh, it's Britain. 
Does that include Wales? Yes, it does, and people get a bit confused about that sort of thing. Um, ha, 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 ha. Um, you know, subtle dig, subtle dig, not subtle anyway. There we go. Um, but uh, it's, so you've got the two tribes in the south, uh, Judah and Benjamin. That's Rehoboam, the natural son. But then ten tribes get stolen by this man, this uh, uh, usurper, Jeroboam, in the north. So the promise here given to Solomon is, you're going to lose most of your kingdom. You can see the bulk of it, Israel. But the south, Judah, because I made a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, that one of his descendants will always be on the throne, that will always be the case. And we see that's enormously significant as you go down these two lines. Israel always... If you get a bit confused about this period of Bible history, once the nation is divided into Israel and Judah, Israel, basically always bad. Always bad. Succession of coups. Someone reigns for a few years and they get killed by the next bad man that comes along. And all the kings of Israel are pretty bad. Judah, mixed. Some good, mostly bad, but always, always a descendant of David. We might leave that up there, so just to get to, don't get a bit confused with names. But so what you get in, uh, when we go back to chapter 14, this has happened, the kingdom has split. And from now onwards, in 1 Kings and 2 Kings, you get the, the, the life of these two nations, Israel and Judah, interwoven. And here in chapter 14, you've got Jeroboam in the north, Israel, and Rehoboam in the south, Judah. And the point is, well, the point is both of them are just going down downward spirals because if you refuse to listen to the word of God it doesn't go well but there's a difference for Judah Judah still keeps going because God has promised we'll get there let's let's cut it this way I'm going to look at a word of judgment a description of discipline and a word of certainty Okay, Uh, we're going to go fairly quickly through some of the texts. I've put more points down there that I'm going to refer to just so you can see what's going on. But uh, three things we'll look at. A word of judgment, a description of discipline, and then a word of certainty. Uh, We'll spend most of our time, uh, two-thirds of our time here, the first one. A word of judgment. Chapter 14, 1 to 20. There's a word of judgment for Jeroboam. Now, Jeroboam, can we just... It's quite a long name, and it sounds a bit like the other bloke, Rehoboam. So can we just make a deal, and I'm just going to call him Jerry, okay? It'll stop us getting confused, and it'll stop me stumbling. So can we do that? Is that okay? So you've got Jerry, Jerry in the north. If you're called Jerry, I'm sorry, but, you know, run with it. Jerry. So Jerry's got a problem. Chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, Avijah, son of Jerry, became ill. Now that's a problem. His son is ill. And, of course, that's a personal worry to him. But also, it's the crown prince. So this is a bit of an issue for the kingdom as well. Uh, You don't want your son and heir, the crown prince, uh, to die. So there's a problem. Of course, he's not being wise to this point, Jerry. So just the two verses beforehand to give you a decent summary of his life. Uh, Chapter 13, verse 33. Jeroboam didn't change his evil ways. He once more appointed priests for the high places from all sorts of people. Verse 13, here's the sin of the house of Jeroboam that led to its downfall and its destruction from the face of the earth. So he's not a good bloke. He's not a Bible hero. He's running counter to God. He's lived the whole of his life sticking two fingers up to God, even though God has given him this kingdom. 
But anyway, he reaches this moment of crisis. I mean, back in, I don't need to turn to it, but back in chapter 11, God had said to Jerry, I will take you, I will give you all that your heart desires, you'll be king over Israel if you do whatever I command you. And walk in obedience to me, but he's not done that. He's lived a life of folly. He completely ignored the Lord's commands, but... But now he's got a personal crisis, chapter 14. His son is sick, and despite rejecting the word of God in the course of life, he now thinks, maybe I can, I don't know, maybe a word of magic from this prophet. He's desperate. He'll do what it takes. So what does he do? Well, it's an odd odd strategy. Verse 2, Jerry says to his wife, go disguise yourself so you won't be recognized as my wife. Then go to Shiloh. Ahijah, the prophet's still there. The one who told me I'll be king over his people. Ah, yeah, the the one who years ago said to me, Ahijah, I'll give you 10 kingdoms and I'll give you all that your heart desires and you will rule over the people as long as you obey me. I've not done any of that. Anyway, go back to that bloke, because I liked it last time he spoke. It went well for me. Go back to him. And um, what are you going to do? Well, go in disguise. And verse 3, take some bread with you, some cakes, a jar of honey. Uh, Go in disguise. Take some sweeties. Uh, Maybe we can sort of deceive the Lord and uh, bribe him with a nice cake. uh, And maybe that'll go okay. But of course, there's a certain irony to all this strategy. Because we're told, uh, end of verse 4... Ahijah's blind. So putting on a disguise, spending hours in makeup and putting on a wig doesn't do you a lot of good because the man is blind anyway. But even though he's blind, he does know the Lord. Verse 5, the Lord had told Ahijah, Jerry's wife is coming to ask you about her son for he's ill. You're to give her such and such an answer. She'll pretend to be someone else. So she arrives. Verse 6, why this pretense? Verse 7, here's what you need to go and tell your husband. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I raised you up from among the people. I appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I tore the kingdom away from the house of David. I gave it to you. But you've not been like my servant David, who kept my commands and followed me with all his heart, doing only what was right in my eyes. Verse 9 is, ouch. You have done more evil than all who lived before you. Ouch. You have made for yourself other gods, idols made of metal. You've aroused my anger. You've turned your back on me. That's fairly demonstrative, isn't it? Someone is speaking to you. If your boss, if your Father, if your wife, if your husband, if someone you respect and a mentor honor is talking to you, look, here's what you need to know for your life. And you say, it's fairly demonstrative. And so I'm afraid it's all over for you, Jerry. Verse 10. Because of this, I'm going to bring disaster upon the house of Jeroboam. I'll cut off from Jeroboam every last male in Israel, slave or free. I'll burn up the house of Jeroboam as one burns dung. Now, I don't say this needlessly, but here the translators have been more polite than God is. Verse 10, literally, God says, well, let me quote you the King James Version, which gives you very much the sense of it. God says, I will cut off from Jeroboam every male that pisseth against the wall. 
Now, I don't say that to be needlessly crude, but sometimes we can be more polite than God is. And here, God says, you stink, Jeroboam. Your house and every male in your house stinks. It stinks like against a wall. To my nose, you stink like excrement. So, I will burn you like excrement. And I, I said, I don't want to be needlessly crude, but God is not happy here. And sometimes these things slightly get smoothed over. It's a blunt word from a distant time. And yet, and yet in Jeroboam's actions here, there's something quite contemporary, I think, or, or timeless, you might say. Jeroboam is a man who's lived his life rejecting God's word, but in a time of crisis. Oh, yeah, uh, uh, is there a God? Can, can I pray to you? Can you do something for me? And that's not particularly uncommon, I think. The problem is he has such a, uh, a diminished or distorted view of God that when he does appeal to the Lord, it's in a very odd way. Uh, God, I, I need you to save my son who's dying. Can I bribe you with a cake? And my wife puts on a wig. I mean, it's a slightly odd way of trying to go about it. But that sort of attitude, I, I guess, is contemporary. The Bible would insist. The Bible would insist every human being on this planet knows that there is a God, but seeks to suppress that truth. Doesn't want to relate to God rightly. Romans 1 teaches it very clearly. We all know in our consciences. Uh, and yet there are times in life, even if we try to suppress that knowledge, that we're just desperate for it to be true. We just want it to be true. Because we need something more. So it was a funny one nationally a couple of years ago. Do you remember a couple of years ago, there was the, uh, the footballer, a Bolton Wanderers footballer, uh, Fabrice Mwamba, uh, was uh, playing an FA Cup match. Uh, live on television and suffered a heart attack uh, just not long into the game. Cardiac arrest on the pitch. His heart stopped for over an hour. Uh, and there's something very dramatic about that. It was on telly. Uh, and there's a man in the prime and the sporting prime. But as soon as he went down and the physios got on the pitch, he was one of, his, one of the opposition teammates, dropped to his knees and started praying. And then the next day, it was a Saturday, the next day, all those, a number of those playing football on a Sunday um, revealed T-shirts when they scored, pray for Patrice, sorry, Fabrice, pray for Fabrice, or pray for Moamba. Even the Sun newspaper on the Monday had as its headline, pray for Fab. And it's one of those moments, it was quite eccentric in this country, which really doesn't do God publicly. And you've got the largest selling newspaper saying, pray, pray, pray for this footballer. You've got all these footballers who, to my knowledge, none of them would profess any faith in God, still saying, pray. Because in a moment of crisis, the knowledge that we suppress, we, there must be more. We're desperate to cry out to someone. It bubbles up. And it happens here for Jerry, Jeroboam. And yet I guess for those of us who are Christians... Uh, there's another sort of pertinent point here. We need to be wary of the same attitude that Jerry has 
to the word of God. So he's lived 20 years of his life ignoring what God had said. Here's a man who has, well, as one commentator put it, he wants the help of the word of God in the emergencies of life, but not the rule of the word of God over the course of life. I think that's a good summary. He wants the help of the word in emergencies of life, but he doesn't want the rule of the word in the normal course of life. And for those of us who are Christians, we just need to be wary of that. Day by day, whatever, whatever, whatever. Yeah, there's a God, yeah, sure, sure. And now I've got a crisis, now I'm interested. Now I'm interested in you. That's not faith exercised rightly in the God. That's somewhat contemptuous. It's entirely possible to bimble along in the Christian life, ignoring God's word, but crying out in times of trouble. And so I guess in part, Jeroboam would say to you and me, what do you want to hear? Do you want to hear God's truth? Or are you just shutting that out? Uh, And only when you think you need it, do you come back? There's a warning, uh, I guess, for you and me. More briefly before we move on. Uh, There's a word of mercy here. It's interesting, uh, verses 12 and 13. Although he's sick, Jerry's son, uh, Avijah, ends up better than everyone else. Verse 12, as for you go back home, when you set foot in your city, the boy will die. All Israel will mourn for him and bury him. In fact, he's the only one belonging to Jeroboam who will be buried. He's the only one in the house of Jeroboam in whom the Lord, the God of Israel, has found anything good. Everyone else will be eaten up by dogs and birds in the street. A sign of being cursed. At least this one will be buried because there's something good in him. I take it that he's a believer. Something like Hebrews 11, verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please the Lord. He's the only one who pleases the Lord. He must have had faith in some kind. Even in this horrible family, even in this despotic regime, it's still possible for individuals to exercise faith. Even in a nation under curse, still individuals who are genuine believers. It reminded me slightly... Remember, this was years and years ago uh, when Leonard Brezhnev died, the Soviet leader. Big, pompous state funeral. You know, full military parade. And yet, just before the coffin was closed, his wife, very bravely, went up to the coffin, made the sign of the cross upon herself and then upon him. Shocked, horror. Horrific faces, horrified faces upon all the dignitaries there. It's very striking that that to do something like that in a citadel of secular, hostile, atheistic, God-hating philosophy of the time. It's a very brave thing to do. Clearly she had some faith in a corrupt regime. And you get that. That's Abijah, apparently. But there's always mercy for those trusting in Jesus Christ. There's always mercy for them. But then briefly, here's a permanent word for the nation. It's a word of permanence. So they're going to be cut off. Uh, Verse 16. He, the Lord, will give Israel up because of the sins Jeroboam has committed and has caused Israel to commit. Given up. Jeroboam's crimes will lead to the collapse of this nation. It would take 200 years for Israel to completely unravel until it's completely wiped off the map. But it will happen. 
because the word of the Lord doesn't fail. Now, you and I need to bear in mind, there is no nation in the world today chosen like Israel was. Israel is unique in the whole of history. No nation today can, um, you can't say of any nation or a disaster befalling a nation, oh, this has happened because of our rejection of the word of God. You just can't do that in the 21st century or the 20th century. Israel was unique in that regard. The church is the gathering of God's people now. And yet this verdict is sobering. And certainly for you and for me, the verdict upon individuals is sobering. So here's Jeroboam's life, verse 19. The other events of Jeroboam's reign, his wars, how he ruled, are written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel. He reigned for 22 years, then he rested with his ancestors. Nadav, his son, became king after him. Oh, you want to know what, you want to know what Jerry did? Oh, you can read that over there. God doesn't care. GDP figures, he doesn't care. Infrastructure projects, he doesn't care. He won some victories, God doesn't care about that. Who cares about that? Was he faithful? No. That's what matters. And you get this little summary statement for all the succeeding kings. So it's as if, you know, an obituary is written for every king. And then God just comes and puts a big red line through it and says, don't care, wasn't faithful. Just don't care what he achieved, not interested. So he brings it. What would your obituary be? And would God care? He cares about faithfulness. It's a sobering thing to think about your um, obituary, isn't it? You know the story of Alfred Nobel. Uh, he of the uh, Nobel Prizes, the 19th century munitions manufacturer, made a fortune producing explosives but only produced the Nobel Prizes through a a chance event, I guess you'd say, in one sense, an accident, because his brother died, Alfred Nobel's brother died. And a newspaper posted an obituary of Alfred. They got it wrong, they got a bit confused. And it contained the line, Alfred Nobel, a man who has made it possible to kill more people more quickly than anyone else who ever lived. And that was his obituary. And he read that and think, okay, that's how, I'll be remem- that's how I will be remembered. I made it possible to kill more people more quickly than anyone else. That's not a great legacy to leave the world, he thought to himself. I tell you what, I'll throw my cash at prizes and so a Nobel Prize for literature, peace, medicine, science, economics, etc. And that's why the name is famous, not for dynamite, uh, as once it might it once have been. The verdict upon his life is, of Jerry's life, is who cares? Was he faithful? So here's a word of judgment on Jeroboam and the nation that follows after him. Here is the word of the Lord, Jeroboam. If you're faithful, it'll go well. You'll leave a legacy. You've not, you'll be wiped out. And I don't care about anything else you've achieved. It's a word of judgment. More briefly, let's pick up the pace uh, for the last two. More briefly then, there's a description of discipline for Rehoboam, a description of discipline. So we jump to the other half. Uh, We jump from Israel in the north to Judah in the south. It's still going down, but in a different sort of way. Um, So what do we learn here? Well, there's compromise. There's compromise in verses 22 to 24. Judah did evil, evil in the eyes of the Lord's. 
by the sins they committed, they stirred up his jealous anger more than those who before them had done. So it's worse than anything else. Well, that's very similar, isn't it? To Jerry in the north, worse than it had been. Uh, verse 23, they also set up for themselves high places, stones, Asherah poles on every hill, every, under every tree. Verse 24, there were male shrine prostitutes, the people engaged in all sorts of detestable practices. It's not good. The people of Judah drifted with the culture around them into these pagan shrine prostitutes. They drifted with the culture around them and so logged on to Ashley Madison for their affairs and had adultery. And they drifted into casual sex rather than faithful there's compromise. So there's decline. Verse 25. So in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak sounds like a curry, but um, there we go. King of Egypt. I'm sure I've had one of those. Um, king, the Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem. And what does he do? It's a smash and grab. He carried off the treasures of the temple of the Lord and the treasures of the royal palace. He took everything, including all the gold shields Solomon had made. So Rehoboam made bronze shields to replace them and so on and so on. Pathetic. It's pathetic. Rehoboam has lost the peace and prosperity of the kingdom, but plays, let's pretend. His father's wealth was the greatest the world had ever seen. People came from all over to gaze at the splendors of Solomon's temple and all that was in there. And now it's all been nicked. And rather than Rehoboam going, oh, have I done something wrong? Why has the Lord done this to us? He goes, I'll just put up some bronze ones instead. People will not really notice. It's all shiny and metal. Uh, And we'll just carry on as before. It's let's pretend. It's ridiculous. And yet, dare I suggest it, there are still plenty of denominations in the UK that are playing let's pretend as they hemorrhage money and they hemorrhage numbers and no one goes to church anymore. And they say, well, let's just still have our big displays and all our pomp and ceremony. We'll just carry on. And um, what? there's nothing. Le- well, it doesn't matter. Well, let's pretend. Let's pretend. Churches can do it too. There's compromise, there's decline. But here's the key difference between these two kingdoms. There's, there's preservation. Rehoboam's family are disciplined. There's decline in the kingdom, but they're never destroyed. God never says, you are worse than anyone I've known before, I'm just going to wipe you out. It doesn't destroy them. Why not? Is Rehoboam just a nicer bloke than Jerry in the north? No. They're both worse than anything that had gone on beforehand. The difference is just a very simple one. God had promised that there would always be a king in Judah in the line of David. He'd promised that. Equally wicked people, but Judah had the promise. God had Promised. So you get these extraordinary things, really. Chapter 15, verse 4. Oh, you're useless. Abijah's useless. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up a son to succeed him and by making Jerusalem strong. For David's sake. For David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Really? I mean, David wasn't great, was he? He did have an affair. He did kill someone. But the principle is a simple one. Here's the model. If you have a righteous king, 
and God promises that he'll reign forever, he will. And you get to the pages of the New Testament and Gabriel appears to Mary and says, you're going to have David's descendant. You're going to have, give birth to a king in the line of David. And he will rule on the, excuse me, he will rule on the throne of David forever. Jesus Christ. And there's the difference. So Christians know that, well, if they reject God's word and do their own thing, they can expect, like Judah here, they can expect the discipline of God, but he'll never let us go. That's the difference between Israel and Judah. God promises, I'll never let you go. So you, as an individual, you can have a compromised faith, you can spend your life worshipping whatever it is, uh, money or sex like they did here. But, and don't be surprised if you live a life of anxiety. Don't be surprised if your faith wavers. Don't be surprised by those things. In one sense, they may well be marks of God's discipline, but he'll never let you go if you're a Christian. He can never let you go. What obituary I read this week was of Alexandra Timpson. I, I like obituaries, you may have guessed that. I just think they're interesting. Alexandra Timpson, who no one has heard of, really, I don't suppose, for one moment. Alexandra uh, Timpson, she married, uh, had three children. In 1973, she uh, answered an advert. It was just a newspaper advert for foster parents. Uh, that was how it was done in those days, somewhat unregulated. Uh, but there we go. And so, so despite, you know, they had uh, her husband and three children. Uh, they were a fairly affluent family. And they took two children, fostered them, age six and age four, two brothers. And uh, in this obituary, she's sort of, in her own words, telling, well, these two boys arrived. And they bicycled round and round our kitchen table, smashing our other kids and telling them to F off and give us some food. And her husband said, can you send those right back? We don't need those two in our family. And she said, no, we've promised to take them. We must keep them. And so they did. And they stayed with them a couple of years. And gradually the F-offs reduced a little bit. And their behavior got a little bit better uh, in that family. And she went on to, over the next 30 years, foster 90 different children. And so she was recognized by the queen. And that's why her... She gets an obituary in the papers because a number of them were very troublesome. And she was asked, we, there must have been some you attempted to say, no, take them back. She said, yes, but I promised. We'd promised we'd look after them. And for you and for me, if you're a Christian, at times our behavior is appalling. We may not bicycle around the kitchen punching other children, but our equivalent as adults can be the same. And God says, oh, they are, they are trying my patience pretty hard. But I've promised to hold on to them, and I will. Because Jesus Christ is the king on the throne. They belong to him, and his throne will never end. So I've promised. So I won't let them go. There's a big difference between the word of judgment for Jeroboam and the description of discipline on Judah, Rehoboam in the south. The difference is just God's promise, which means there's a word of certainty for us. Lastly, very briefly, a word of certainty. So Jerry's son, just over the page, chapter 15, verses 25 to 30, we won't read it all. Jerry's son. God had said, Jerry, you and your family will be cut off. 
Jerry's son, Nadab, is also absolutely wicked. Verse 26, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, committing the same sins his father had done. So what happens? Basha, son of Ahijah from the tribe of Issachar, plots against him. Verse 28, Basha kills Nadab in the third year. Verse 29, as soon as he began to reign, Basha killed Jeroboam's whole family. He did not leave Jeroboam, anyone that breathed, but destroyed them all according to the word of the Lord. Because amidst the misery, the story of decline that is this chapter, the one thing that is certain is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. It's the one thing that does drive the chapter. And that is encouragement. I guess there are places around the world that's an enormous encouragement. If you're living as a believer under a wicked regime in wherever it may be, in Syria, Zimbabwe, North Korea, here's encouragement. The regimes will fall. God's word will stand. He will punish the wicked. He will raise up those who trust in him. You can know that. It may take a long time. Jeroboam ruled for 22 years and his son for another few years. It took a few years, but it happened. They were judged. The faithful were raised up. And here's an encouragement for you and for me, that if we're trusting in God's promises, God's king will always be on the throne. So here, just in chapter 14, Jeroboam, Nadab, that's it. Then the line of Jeroboam ends. But in a slightly haphazard, so it seems to us, way, Solomon's, David's line, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, You can just read through these chapters, his son takes over. Because the promise to David that David's son will always reign, it doesn't fade. It's a promise that finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He will reign on his throne, the throne of David, forever. And so despite our compromise, despite the fact that we need to be disciplined by the Lord sometimes, He'll never let us go. But do trust his wisdom. It goes better that way. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the promises that we have in Jesus Christ that he will reign forever and that he will never let go those who trust in him. We may have hardships. There may be times of discipline when we reject your word, but you'll never let us go. And we thank and praise you for it. And thank you that even in this dismal story of decline in 1 Kings 14, we see that. While Jerry and his family, they get wiped off because of your promises to never let David's king go. The others... Rehoboam and family are safe. So we see even an echo there of the truth we see in the pages of the New Testament. You never let your people go. Your promises stand. And as one whose promises are trustworthy, would we listen? And would we trust you? Looking to you for wisdom, not our own. Amen.